Listeners be advised that this podcast contains graphic language about experiences of military life. The Medal of Honor is the U.S. military's highest decoration for those who distinguish themselves with acts of valor. It means that someone acted in total disregard for their own safety, their own life, to do something above and beyond the call of duty. You hear that and it sounds like a cliche, right? But I think the expression must have been written with the Medal of Honor in mind. Because with that singular act of courage, uh, Kyle, you not only saved your brother in arms, you displayed a heroism in the blink of an eye that will inspire for generations. Kyle Carpenter received the Medal of Honor from President Barack Obama for something he did in Afghanistan when he was a 21-year-old Marine. But here's the thing. He has no memory of what he did to get it. I don't remember seeing the grenade, hearing the grenade, thinking about it. And then I remember I felt like I got hit really hard in the face. My vision immediately was like a TV with no connection, just white and gray static. This is out of uniform. Conversations with veterans about who they were before they served and how their lives changed during and after service. I'm Tim Kolzak. I'm an Iraq war veteran. And it's important to me that our stories are known and shared. I've seen Kyle Carpenter in so many rooms where he was speaking to someone who may not have any special clout or status. No matter who you are, he makes you feel valuable important. And I wondered, where does that come from? And is that the same empathy that led Kyle to put his life on the line for a fellow Marine? After talking with Kyle, I think part of the answer lies with his parents. They've always been my biggest fans. You know, they gave me a foundation to go forward into any situation and, you know, believe that I could do it, but also feel that no matter what happened, I would still be loved and supported. And I think Kyle really internalized that go-forward-in-any-situation approach to push through uncertainty. He moved around a lot growing up because of his dad's work. Before his last move, he was in high school in Tennessee, where he made friends, was a small guy who worked really hard to get a starting spot on the football team, and then had to move to South Carolina. Kyle says he was devastated, but not for long. He experienced something that shifted his life perspective and introduced him to the idea of service. I found out about uh, this youth group from this local church going on a mission trip for a week down to the Dominican Republic. And so I thought, you know, at this point, you know, why not? And so I went. That trip not only taught me perspective about you are not your circumstances. And the fact that the people I hung out with all week, they were the happiest people I've ever met. Mm. And they lived at the bottom of a landfill. And to give them a soccer ball, you might as well have been handing them a hundred dollar bill. So not only that, but more importantly, and in the bigger picture, that trip showed me that everywhere in the world is not like America is not like how I grew up. Not everyone has the safety and freedom and um, the luxuries that I had and I was so fortunate enough to have. And so, you know, along with, you know, that supplementing that foundation that I already had, 
thankfully, uh, and opening my eyes to the world, all of those things played into my journey of not just wanting to serve, but wanting to serve something, a purpose, and commit my myself and my life, if it was for four years or 30 years, to something bigger than myself or any one individual. Kyle decided that serving his country might fulfill that desire. He told me he felt it was a calling, even described it as his destiny. He was also on a journey of self-discovery. He wanted something that would push him to his limits. And that's what led him to the Marine Corps. I joined the Marine Corps specifically because, you know, where on the street was, I had heard it was the hardest. (laughs) Uh, You know, but beyond that, with knowing that how difficult it was going to be, you know, I knew how many sprints I could run on the football field. I knew how much weight I could lift. I knew that I could make it through uncomfortable situations. I also knew that I didn't fully know myself, though. Hmm. And I had never been pushed so far that I had to truly dig and look deep down inside to know who I really was and who I could become. But when I joined, you know, it's it's an entirely different story of how um, hard it was on my parents. Hmm. Devastatingly hard. Really? So your mom and dad were not pumped about you joining? I mean, it was, uh, you know, weeks and months of not just talking about, hey, are you sure you want to do this? But hey, is it just that you want to get out and get away and go explore the world? Like, you know, we'll send you on any trip you want. Pick it wherever you want to go for how long. You know, we'll fund it and and you just take off for as long as you need to kind of get this bug out of your system, right? And of course it wasn't that. So after many conversations, I sat them down and I said, listen, you know, this is what I truly not only want to do, but I believe it is the path for my life. Mm. And I feel called to do this. And uh, not that through those weeks and months leading up to that conversation, did they not love and support me? It was just, you know, as, as parents out there can imagine, your oldest son, one of three sons, joining the Marine Corps, you know, going into infantry at that, and um, not having any knowledge of service and what the military really was about. Um, so we were all very ignorant about what a life of service and joining the military meant. Uh, my mom's dad, who died when I was very young, was in the Navy. But other than that, uh, we just didn't know. And again, that uncertainty, you know, sometimes uh, breeds fear. And in that situation, rightfully so. So it was many talks and a process. And uh, I went through all of that because I wanted their blessing. You know, I didn't need it. I didn't have to have it, but I wanted it. And so when I felt like they got to a point that was, okay, you know, they've kind of come to terms with what I'm telling them. And as hard as it is, we're still just going to look forward and kind of go confidently forward together. 
you know, at that point, uh, I made the move and I uh, went to boot camp in March of 2009. Marine Corps boot camp is particularly grueling. I was in the Army. We did nine weeks. Kyle did 13. And from what I know, training to be a Marine is just an all-around experience of basically getting your head kicked in. And what they're doing is breaking you down to the bare minimum of who you are. The first shakeup is making you question everything you believe, everything you've known, and then building you back up. And they're very proud of that. They turn these guys into pit bulls. You're going from a civilian to a trained killer in three months. You go through endurance exercises, obstacle courses, ruck marches, where you have a 50 to 100 pound sack on your back and march for miles. There are two places for Marine boot camp, San Diego, California, and where Kyle went, Paris Island, South Carolina. If you don't have the, is this real? What is happening right now? What did I do? type yeah. moments, at least for the first few hours or days, um, then, I mean, either more power to you or uh, you were not totally present. <laughs> because when that just monster of a human being ripped the door open on that van, that drill instructor, and told us to get out of the van and stand on the yellow footprints, Dude, I thought the door, I thought he ripped the van door off. <laughs> and so, uh, and so uh, you know, from that point, though, um, as surreal and scary as it was, I was like instantly getting what I set out to do and what I wanted. Yeah. Like scared. I don't know what's about to come next. I don't know if I'm even going to make it through the day if, before this guy kills me, you know, like <laughs> all these things. But it was just uh, invigorating that I was there. I was doing it. And, you know, it's the people think like, oh, you know, all these people serving in the military, they did it for money or they did it for fill in the blank reasons. I mean, there's a hundred of them out there, but it is very difficult to pass the rigorous standards, not only physically but mentally, you know, that when you sign up, you know, if you've done drugs, if you've got arrested, like you have to get waivers, you have to go through a stringent process to be, to even be able to go to Paris Island and try to become a Marine. You know, some, some people wait around in the delayed entry program, which for any of you not familiar, you go, you join, you sign on the dotted line. You technically kind of join the military, but you're in this delayed entry program until you get your ship date for boot camp. Mm -hmm. I've talked to Marines that were in the delayed entry program for a year and a half, almost two years. Like, wow. just can't wait to try to earn that title. So, you know, it's not, there. there's always going to be the, the few in every group that's in it for the wrong reason. Yeah. But I was finally there. And um, I was delayed entry by seven months. Yeah, exactly. Know, way, See, that's yeah. amazing. Oh, you had seven months to think about it, psych yourself out, and maybe not do it. And you still did it anyway. So that's, you know, that's incredible. And I did think about not doing it. <laughs> it was, two, it was yeah. 2005. I was like, man, there are way too many guys getting killed or wounded over there. Like, this is serious. Like, yeah, you, 17 years old. I'm a boy. Exactly. You know? like, but see, that is how serious it is. You know, for anyone listening, I mean, it's crazy to have those concerns at 17. Yeah. Like, oh man, like, am I even going to make it through my four year enlistment? Yeah. 
But, you know, I was there. I stood on those yellow footprints and I was beginning my journey. Mm -hmm. So a little scared, like, what did I do? But also to be there and, and to, to be present in that moment where so many Marines and recruits have stood before. It was just surreal and, and beautiful. And I was just, I was just super pumped to be there. And, and whatever came my way, I was just hungry to get through it or let it destroy me, but still keep moving on. You know, there was just no stopping me, at least in my head. After boot camp, Kyle spent six weeks at the School of Infantry. It's less yelling and screaming and more field tactics and logistics and how to operate various weapons, how to attack a target, how to dig a fighting hole. You pack a bag and go out in the middle of the woods, dig that hole, live there for weeks, and learn to survive. It's pretty miserable, but all that training is essential to prepare you for an actual infantry unit. Kyle joined a unit at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, and from there he flew to Helmand Province in Afghanistan for his seven-month deployment. The Taliban was engaging in a typical tactic, which Al-Qaeda also used in Iraq when I was there. They allowed the incoming units to have the area because the Taliban knew they couldn't stand and fight. And then they used ambush tactics. And that's what Kyle experienced when he went in. You know, we're getting helicoptered in because there's not really any roads or any infrastructure that could support any vehicles. Yeah. Uh, we were so far out that you know, it was only foot patrols for our entire deployment. But while we were while we were in that helicopter and before I got the ammo, I was looking out the back and we're flying low and fast so I can see every field. I can see every farmer, every canal, every tree line, every road, every village. And I couldn't help but to think, you know, after 10 days before giving my mom a hug for potentially the last time, and wondering as we rode on the bus to the airport, like, man, I wonder which one of these guys are not going to be around me for the ride home. So that, on top of 10 days later, getting inserted by helicopter, I was looking out the back, and I just thought, man, am I going to step on an IED on that road? Am I going to bleed out in that field? Mm. Am I going to get shot and die in that tree line? And it wasn't like scared. It was just so real trying to process, you know, what I'm about to go into. But at the same time, dude, I mean, you're, you're getting shot at and you know the risk, you know what's happening. You can hear the rounds. You can hear like the whisper of the rounds because that's when they get real close. Everyone thinks it's the crack of the rifle or, you know, phew. no, it's like, you know, when it just whispers to you. Mm. And so even though that's happening, you can only process it. 90 percent it's just so real and intense yeah wow so and i love what you said about that whisper because everybody does think about the crack right (laughs) in the movie like maybe i wish i'd heard that because then they were not accurate but no when they're whispering to you that's that's when it's real trouble yeah and uh now had you taken casualties in those four months you know leading you know many many yeah many what's the what's the feeling of that when you took your first so we had taken a few um some i had heard over the radio some I had seen, and it was just, you know, uh, 
And I say minor, don't everyone gasp while you're listening to this. Minor gunshot wounds to the legs. Yeah. You know, they can still hobble in with help and just put them Where on medevac. Where you know they're going to be okay. Yeah, eating ice cream in two days. Like, thanks a lot, guys. See ya. <laughs> we call that the million dollar wound. Yeah, for <laughs> Especially sure. a butt shot. Yeah. 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 Uh, we can joke with the audience here, Kyle. I'll yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, of course. But then there was that one day in Marsha. And I'm not talking about the incident that landed Kyle Carpenter the Medal of Honor. But on that day, Kyle witnessed something catastrophic. It also turned into an important lesson about leadership in the middle of chaos. He was on foot patrol when his squad leader stepped on an improvised explosive device, or IED, that was hidden underground. Kyle watched as the corpsman got the squad leader to safety. And a corpsman will never leave his patient or who he's working on or trying to save. Our corpsman was trying to drag him to another side of the wall because we knew that an attack was about to start. And as he picked him up and started dragging him, his leg, boot and all, just stayed on the ground and slid right out of the bottom of his camouflage pants. Jeez. I thought, like, what? I mean, it's... Like, just like the movies, only makeup or special effects could could do that. Yeah. You know, it was like a split second moment of not being able to comprehend what I was seeing. But of course, that had to go away immediately. Yeah. Because we knew the attack was coming and it did as we waited the almost 50 minutes for his medevac to arrive. Wow. And so... uh I, I I say now, you know, in his his what we thought were his last few moments, he said uh, he he was an incredible leader, still is, and one of my great friends, and he's completely crushing it in the world now. And I tell his story to corporate crowds and and anyone because uh, it was just amazing. But he, he gave us his last words of leadership, you know, told us to take care of ourselves, look after ourselves, to talk to us and to make sure that we're good Man. and staying focused. And then the last thing he said was, you know, look after, you know, my wife and uh, my daughter. His wife was pregnant with their first child and she was due, you know, in the next couple months while we were still going to be deployed. Jeez. And, uh, you know, now I say that he's completely outnumbered by enemy forces with not one, but two baby daughters. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm so thankful and just forever grateful that, of course, he made it. But there was more to that day in Marja. After a short break, we'll pick up Kyle Carpenter's story. This is Out of Uniform. Hi, I'm TBR Bioscience and Medicine reporter Bonnie Petrie, and we've entered year three of the COVID-19 pandemic. And yet, there's still so much we don't know. On TBR's Petri Dish podcast, we investigate the medical and scientific unknowns around the pandemic grounded in good science. Listen to Petri Dish, that's P-E-T-R-I-E, wherever you get your podcasts. This is Out of Uniform. I'm Tim Kolzak. So after Kyle Carpenter's squad leader was safely on the medevac, 
his unit patrolled back to the base in the village. After the sun had set, Kyle was assigned to Radio Watch. And Radio Watch is sitting in a dusty, dimly lit, for whatever flashlight you have around, room. And you are just listening to the patrol that goes out at night. Kyle heard an explosion, probably from an IED, going off way in the distance. And, you know, sometimes it might be a farm animal that steps on them. Sometimes, unfortunately, it might be a civilian, which the Taliban or enemy doesn't care one way or the other. Yeah. So it's kind of like, man, obviously, I hope that wasn't one of our guys, but it was a ways off. And I knew that they were patrolling a ways off, too. And this IED was so massive that I remember while, you know, intently on edge, holding the radio, waiting for any info to come in, I remember seeing like dust rattle and fall from the walls because it was just that hard of an explosion. Wow. And, uh, dude, right there. One of my very good buddies, he was 18, maybe 19 years old, you know, took his last step and breath on this earth. You know, again, I wasn't out getting shot at. I was in the base. I was safe in that moment. And I wasn't seeing the casualty, but to hear over the radio that they're looking for him. He was hit so hard that they had their flashlights out trying to find if anything was left of him. And then after four months of kind of those moments um, nonstop, um, you know, those uh, led to the ultimate moment of my deployment. Yeah on the roof that day, November 21st, 2010. That was the day Kyle Carpenter committed himself to the unbelievable act that earned him the Medal of Honor. Kyle's unit was tasked with taking over a new compound in another village and holding that ground. That was their mission. And when you're out there, you have to have somebody with you. Kyle always patrolled with Nick Euphrazio, his battle buddy. Nick and Kyle had become best friends, and they were more than halfway through their seven-month deployment. And in a couple of months, that new unit of Marines was going to come in and relieve us, and we were going to go home. But just like with anything in life, I believe, and the Marine Corps believes, you should leave it better than you found it. And that is expanding your area of operation. And if you keep doing that every deployment, you know, we expand a little bit, the next unit comes in. They expand, and, and in doing this, you're not only pushing the bad guys out, but you're creating stability in that region to hopefully, again, lead to schools being built or, um, you know, logistics to open up enough to where all the kids can have shoes on their feet or clean drinking wells dug for them. And so we were going south, and there was three villages to the south of us, and we nicknamed them Shady shadier and shadiest because dude every foot you went further south the fighting intensified like you oh yeah and so uh we got tasked with this mission and essentially it was hey go take over this compound in this village 
take as much food, water, ammo, and empty sandbags that we once we got there, we would fill to block bullets and put up a lookout position um, and go and try to survive and for five days or so before we can get you relief. Mm-hmm. And so uh, safe to say we drew the short straw <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we packed our bags and we took off and halfway down, we started getting shot at. Jeez. Packs are so heavy, they were like slow-moving turtles out in this field. All you could do is take a knee and hope that they were not accurate because there wasn't really any running with the packs that we had on. So that's what started, how this mission started off. Um, Fast forward about a day later, and it was the morning of the day that I got hit, November 21st. We started getting attacked and getting shot at, small arms fire, AK-47s. At about 7.30 that morning, I remember rolling over and unzipping my sleeping bag and thinking somewhat along the lines of, well, here we go again, another day in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I don't remember anything until later that afternoon, myself and a fellow, a best friend, a fellow Marine were on top of a roof together. And... Uh, for anyone listening that's trying to get a visual image, go to Google Earth or Google Maps, put in Marja and get the aerial view and kind of the landscape feel for what I'm talking about. But these compounds, as you know, you know, they're essentially just a big square courtyard. Right. And the families, the farm animals, you know, the crops you've picked and are drying out or drugs, whatever it is, are in this compound. And that's why, for anyone not familiar, that's why... The fighting was so intense and there was so many fighters in the area of Marja because it was like, you know, the Midwest here. It was the most fertile land. It was where they grew all the poppy that they converted to heroin that they then sold to buy arms and all of these things. The cash crops that was fueling this Taliban insurgency. And so they they condense into that area to protect those assets. Right. So myself and Nick, we're on top of this roof. And again, I don't remember anything up until the point of right before we got hit. Kyle doesn't remember what he did when a grenade was thrown onto that roof. His actions saved the life of Nick Euphrazio. And miraculously, Kyle lived too but at great physical cost to both of them. We'll pick up the story, what did happen on that roof, on the next out of uniform. I'm Tim Kolzak, an Army combat veteran, and I travel the country hearing stories from vets like Kyle Carpenter. Our executive producer and editor is Carson Frame, with help from Cindy Carpian and Adam Kulikov. The theme music was written by Jacob Rizzotti, who also sound designs the show. Out of Uniform is a co-production of the Veterans Project and Texas Public Radio. You can see photographs and read stories of these veterans at thevetsproject.com. <laughs>